Hey everybody, it's Ian King, founder of King's Watch International, innovative training methods. And today in our KSI podcast, we have a special guest in Eric. Eric Chesson, you with us, Eric? Yes, I am, Ian. Excellent. Well, I appreciate you taking the time, Eric, to join us. And I'm going to let you tell your story. But I've got to tell you, when I come across a, a physical coach with a a unique and, and a niche market that's that's of a higher value, potentially of a higher value, and, and willing to do things that other people aren't doing. You always get my attention. So I'm looking forward to learning uh, your story. So start off with telling us about your, 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 your business, but then I'm going to get you to go back, and uh, after that we'll go get a little bit of your life history. Sure. Absolutely. So um, starting out with – so I'm the founder of Autism Fitness. It's a – a business that I started over 15 years ago. And I started out working as a personal trainer working with general population. And I had some experience working with the autism and special needs population in summer camp programs, never from a fitness perspective, but just as a summer camp counselor in my, in my teenage years and early 20s. And at the time that I started out as a personal trainer, I was also going to graduate school in a general psychology program that had a, a heavy behavior analysis influence. And I had a classmate who said, hey, I know you're a personal trainer and that you have this background in fitness. I work in a program in New York City with teenagers on the autism spectrum and we've never had a, a comprehensive fitness program we've had some people who have come in and tried to do sports but the individuals that we have are uh are pretty challenging from a behavioral perspective and from a cognitive perspective so this might be something that could work and since you're in this course i know that you also have um a, a background or at least a brief introduction to applied behavior analysis, which has been demonstrated to be the most effective uh, intervention for both positive behavior support and education for individuals on the autism spectrum. And I started working in this program. And at the time I was still in the early stages of my, um, my fitness career and underwent uh, intensive training in applied behavior analysis, both clinical and academic, and was starting to see real results with these athletes. And, and what I mean by results, um, increased strength, increased uh, motor planning, being able to perform two or three um, movements in, in a row with, with good fluidity. And on the other side of that, or in, in part of that, I also began to experience the individuals actually enjoying exercise. And what we know about the autism population, there tends to be a great rigidity around um, activities in, in any realm that they enjoy. So we see these narrow amounts of um, of activities or or um, life activities that they'll engage in uh, willfully in the beginning. So working in 
working with a, a limited amount of, of athletes at that time, I started taking on more clients and they were typically in their adolescent to teenage years too. And one of the things that I have to probably the myth or the misconception, I might say that I have to dispel the most is that someone will tag autism fitness or they'll share something about autism fitness on, on Facebook or on social media. And they say autism fitness does great things for kids on the autism spectrum. And meanwhile, the video will be of a 16 or 17 or 27 year old. So I look at these as lifelong fitness and life skill programs and not just something that's for the younger population. So in, in having worked with hundreds of athletes on, on the autism spectrum of all ability levels and all age ranges, what I did uh, about 10 years ago was start to put together a methodology that is now called the PAC profile that serves not only as a basis for assessing physical ability in a fitness or adapted PE setting for this population, but also allows us to develop programs and, and create um, reachable goals for individuals um, on the autism spectrum and otherwise. Very, very interesting. So personally, did you have a personal experience? Like did, were you born in, in a house or you raised in a house, uh, friends, relatives? Did you have any personal experiences with autism? Was there an early life experience that drew you to this? No, uh, the, the only experience I had, I worked in one, um, as I mentioned, summer camp program and there was one, uh, he must have been a 10 or 11 year old boy um, with what we might call prototypical kind of classic autism symptoms. And his caretaker, he had a one-to-one -one and she was really cool and she was really um, very, very immersed in, in his world and, and really an effective therapy provider. And even at that point, and I must have been, oh, 18, 19 years old. And at that time, I did not at all think that I wanted to do anything um, with the autism population as a career, but I, it, it was something that still fascinated me. And I, it, it, it was just one of those things that stuck with me. So the only reason that I continued on with this as a career was the opportunity presented itself and I could find nothing in, in the way of information on how to structure a fitness program for the autism population. And because I, had the the dual backgrounds or the interdisciplinary background in both um, applied behavior analysis and and fitness and later on uh, exercise science it I it allowed me to speak both languages meaning I could teach a fitness professional about the behavioral and cognitive side of autism or I can talk to an ABA therapist or a special educator about how to develop a meaningful fitness program and how to progress or regress in exercise and what makes sense from the perspective of exercise selection as well. So it was to risk using a, an, an overused term, it was really an organic process because I did not start out thinking, well, I'm gonna create a, a fitness business and now I need to find a niche population and now I need to you know, find a way to market it. That that 
all coincided or came along with the fact that I found it was a population I love to work with, that there was no, or at least I, I could find no relevant information on how to create optimal programs for them. And I found that it was something that I, I had a talent for doing and that I was able to convey the information so that other professionals and, and parents could understand it and apply it too. And that's why now, um, since last uh, uh, last May, we've had we've launched the Autism Fitness Level One certification, and now we have um, in the continental United States um, we have over a hundred certified professionals who have uh, who have been using the methodology with a great degree of success. That's the feedback that we get consistently. And I want to come back and explore the, the educational pathway there. Yeah, um, I certainly can relate to the to the, the lack of information when you, you're faced with a, a child looking for a solution and there's nothing in the published world or, or little. Um, that was what 1980 was in the way of how to train an athlete. But that's a different story. So I'm sure you are in touch with the history of, of autism. Let's go back through and let's let's give a quick snapshot because. Conditions like this weren't always recognised, uh, weren't always labelled accurately, and they, they were often treated differently. So, from your from your readings, from your historical um, yeah discovery, give us a quick snapshot of the the progression of recognition and the challenges for those who who, who possess uh, were on the spectrum going back, you know, back uh, decades. Yeah. Sure. Well, the first thing to notice that autism is a neurobiological disorder and in the uh, epidemiological research now, there are geneticists who have identified, I, I think it's somewhere in the neighborhood of uh, 150 or 200 different uh, genetic factors or genetic markers for autism, uh, including um, or, or in addition to some environmental factors uh, that are being studied uh, as well. For example, there, it, there's some new research regarding um, women who have uh, fevers or are significantly overweight during pregnancy. There seems to be a, a relationship between those factors and, uh, and, and levels of, of autism. And then some other environmental factors looking at um, pesticides are, are another uh, potential uh, not direct cause, but possibly, possibly indirect cause. But you're looking at this wide range of potential um, uh, in, insults, environmental and, and genetic, that that could be causative in autism. So going back into the early history of autism in the 1940s and and 50s, to a point you made earlier, a lot of uh, there was really no autism diagnosis it was all lumped in with whatever uh basic category of, of mental illness or mental retardation at the time you had so it it was uh for severe cases you're looking at institutionalization or um you know living in in the family attic or in the basement and and no therapeutic intervention whatsoever. And then through the uh, 50s, even even through the 60s, there was the term 
uh, refrigerator mothers, where it was it, it was postulated that um, because of a lack of attention or or caring or warmth on the on the part of mothers, that would cause uh, autism or or create the environment in which uh, autism could um, could form, and that is definitely not true. And then, of course, through the uh, the 90s and early 2000s, and and some of which still persist today, um, based on a, a completely fraudulent study, people were blaming vaccines and thinking that um, the MMR vaccines were were a cause of autism, which has been uh, completely uh, invalidated. And and every <laughs> at, at this point, every industrialized nation um, around the world has concluded the same thing, that there is zero correlation between vaccines and autism. And it wasn't really until the early the early 2000s when um, behavioral and educational models began to take uh, to take form and, and were more wi uh, widely available, at least in the United States. And what arose from that was the science of applied behavior analysis, which seems to have uh, or, or has been demonstrated to have the most efficacy in treating um, non-medical behaviors and and improving education and quality of life. And but what I mean by non-medical, you always have to rule out a medical issue first. So in a, if an individual, for example, is having migraine headaches, we're not going to create a behavioral protocol to decrease whatever maladaptive or problematic behaviors we see around the headaches. We want to treat the headache. So you, you need a model that takes into account that there are um, some some medical issues that can arise. There are some studies, and I certainly can't quote any right now, and I'm not versed in this enough to, to comment on it, but um, supporting the idea that, that gut health or uh, an imbalance in gut health might have some some factors in in autism, both medically and and behaviorally, as well. So that's the brief history of of autism in the twentieth uh, and twenty first century, leading up to today, where we're looking at a population that, while many now have access to uh, educational and, and vocational and some life skill programs, which certainly certainly aren't as widespread as they need to be, it it still begs the question of what about fitness and wellness from uh, you know from a lifelong perspective and what makes sense in terms of fitness programming for this population because there are some very um, very specific and very very critical issues that need to be covered and, and understood in order to do that successfully. So it's interesting for me to, to watch the, the growth of exercise as a, a tool, as, a, as a, I guess you call it a treatment tool. Mm -hmm. And you know, for, take, for example, cancer. There, there's a, this somewhat of a rapid growth of support for exercise in cancer, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Can you uh, give me, relative to 
autism, can you give me the fundamentals of how exercise positively contributes to the condition? Oh, sure. Uh, absolutely. So in the diagnosis of, of autism, in addition to um, regression in social skills and some of the cognitive challenges, uh, in, a, in addition to productive speech and um, abstract thinking, these are, these are things that are common uh, deficits or challenges. We also have a, a, an array of gross motor and strength deficits that are often diagnosed as, uh, as low tone in the population, which is just at this point kind of a catch-all phrase for are going to have issues in all of the fundamental movement patterns. So when we look at squatting and pushing and pulling and, uh, and, and climbing and crawling, there are going to be deficits there at, related to, to the disorder. Now, it, it's my thought that there is certainly a neuromuscular component to this. And as individuals with autism age and get into their teenage and adult years, because there's a, a high incidence of sedentary lifestyle and not a lot of programs that cover physical development, you have the, you, you have the setting for issues that are already in existence in conjunction with the, with the disorder or with the diagnosis. And then you have limited avenues for, for treatment or, or intervention. So when we look at the autism population, and this is across the board in my experience, whether I have an individual who is extremely low functioning from a cognitive perspective and has, from all available evidence, limited uh, verbal communication and, and limited receptive language skills or processing, or we're talking about an individual, I, I have some athletes who you can have a thorough and complete conversation about political science with even with those two extremes along the spectrum we're still seeing a lot of the same gross motor deficits and i'll put it this way in, in over 15 years and hundreds of athletes that i've i've worked with i've seen maybe three possibly four squat patterns that looked good like a good, healthy, below parallel, feet on the floor squat pattern in, in this population. So when we're looking at the basic tenets of human movement and biomechanics, they are just not there with this population. And I think for a long time it was ignored. And my, my experience has been that there was a point where a lot of the individuals who were diagnosed early. They were diagnosed around three years old, four years old in uh, somewhere in the mid to late 1990s. As they became adolescents and teenagers, they began to gain weight, which is indicative certainly of other issues, but it's probably the most, um, the most visible one. And that's when, uh, for, uh, whether it's a, a coincidence or not, that's when I started getting more emails and more phone calls from parents who would say, hey, I have a 16 or I have a 17 or I have, a, I have an 18 year old son or daughter 
and they're overweight now and I can't find any any programs for them and I found your website or I read an article uh, that you wrote or someone forwarded a, a video and it was around that same time when so many of these individuals that were were diagnosed at three or four were becoming of age or, or you know were hitting um, were hitting puberty and there was this weight gain and parents started looking at it as oh th this this is an issue and we're still there today one of one of the few statistics that i do cite during the the certification is that we have a 31 percent obesity rate among adolescents on the autism spectrum in the united states um which is not it, we don't you don't look at that and say well um, you know, that, that must mean that 69% of them are perfectly fit and able. That's just the ones who have been di you know, diagnosed as clinically obese. So certainly the problem does not start and end with, the, uh, with individuals who are on the autism spectrum and clinically obese. This is something that I, I have seen and, and heard about and been reported to me again and again and again and again because we have to take a more, we have to take a proactive approach to fitness and wellness for this population. And on a, on a, a large scale, it's just not being done right now. So some of the key words I'm picking on and I like the, 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 for life. So let's talk about this. Let's compare mainstream delivery compared mm -hmm. to what you're delivering for this specific population. Now, without wanting to get too specific, I, I'd, I'd postulate that the, Delivery of, of physical education or, or movement to the general population is being done in a way that the lifelong uh, con, uh, compliance or uh, uptake is poor. I, I would agree with that completely. So there's obviously something's wrong with the system. Something something's yep. wrong with the delivery. So what I'm asking you then is, are you looking to do better with and and how would you compare or how would you anticipate um, your compliance rate and, and you know, what are the strategies, that, what's the difference that you're going to get a better compliance rate than mainstream pop? Sure. Well, if we look at mainstream population, it, it you, I look at the autism and special needs population and what goes on in adaptive physical education as a, a microcosm or a mirror of, of what goes on in general population. So in the United States, um, the, the prevailing approach to physical education is a team sports-based model. So let's do a unit on baseball and then let's unit, do a unit on basketball and let's do a unit on soccer and let's do a unit on basketball, right? So, um, and, and, it's, and that's not necessarily universal, but I, I, I think it's, I, I think we can generalize by saying that. So if that's the model, what happens is we lose a lot of the educational part of physical education because if we're going to call it physical education then it has to be structured the same way as as any other education program so what do we look at the foundation of for mathematics well addition and subtraction and then we work up to multiplication and division however in in the american model what we're doing is throwing uniforms on five and six year olds and saying, well, you have a, a soccer or um, because you're in Aus Australia, Ian, we have a football uniform on a kid. So now they're a football player. So, well, 
that doesn't really make sense because those prerequisite skills and and we can get into the the idea of play skills aren't being developed and if our junior to high school curriculum is consisting of let's take away even team sports let's say competitive activities you have a certain segment of that population um, and, and that's going to the, be the minority of that population that's interested in competitive athletics. It's also likely the case that the individuals who are um, interested in competitive athletics are the ones who are already playing them. So what does that mean? That means that those who are already skilled are going to be participating and you're going to have significant drop off from the rest of your class or the rest of your students. So what are you setting up as a long-term educational paradigm if you're saying the only people who really need to participate here are the people who are already good at this and everybody else, ah, well, this is what we're doing, so you're, you're at a loss. And we can see that over and over and over again in the general population because you look at the rates of preventable, preventable medical issues among our general population in the United States, and it's abysmal. So then let's take special needs and let's take autism and look at, at adapted physical education. If adaptive physical education is going to mimic or mirror what's going on in contemporary uh, or, or neurotypical physical education, then you're basing your special education model on a failing general ed model, which is not really where I'd want to start my program. So I look at it from the perspective of what do we need in life skills? From my perspective, well, we need strength, we need stability, we need motor planning, and we need that to be scalable. Because you cannot give me, if we're looking at, at the neurotypical population, you know, normally developing teenagers, if you give me a class of 20, 25, 30 students, are you going to say they're all going to have the same physical level just because they're of the same age and in the same physical education class. No. So the reality is that all physical ed education is adaptive because if you're doing it right, it has to be scalable for everybody in that room. So I'm not doing anything that shouldn't be done in general PE programming. I'm just doing it because it has to be done this way if it's going to be successful. So we're looking at fundamental movement programs. We're looking at scalability in being able to progress and regress those activities to the current ability level of each participant. And we're looking at our positive behavior support and coaching and cueing for a population that doesn't readily engage in physical activity. Well, you've, you've hit some key points on the very accurately there, and um, I think it's fair to stereotype across the Western world in terms of mm. application of, of physical, physical education. So let me let me go on to the next um, challenge for you. So if we divided all training into structured and unstructured training, mm -hmm. what's the role of both in your program? Oh, perfect. Oh, I love this question. Thank you, Ian. So. I refer to this as the dilemma of playground skills. So when I take my equipment and most of what I use, 90% of what I use in my autism fitness programs are resistance bands and low hurdles and sandbags and, um, and medicine balls um, and, and some circle and, and spot markers. 
right? So if I take that equipment, if I take a bag of the, that equipment out to a playground and just dump it on the floor and scatter it around, and I, I this is not theoretical, I've witnessed this happening over and over, on a on your average playground, what will happen on a Saturday morning is neurotypical, normally developing children will gravitate towards the equipment like a magnet because it's novel. They want to engage with it. Um, they want to play around. They they have an innate play-seeking ability that's kind of built in. With the autism population, we don't always have that. In fact, most of the time we don't. So I could take the same obstacle course or activity course set up. I could have my hurdles set up in a row. I could have multicolored cones. I can have my sand bells. I can have medicine balls. And I can put them all in a in an open gymnasium and take one of you know any one of my athletes and they'll walk into the room and just stand there or maybe walk around the perimeter of the room. They don't display the same place seeking behavior. So what we can do with that is not say, oh, they'll never be able to play or there's no creative capacity here. What we need to do is build in the impetus or the motivation to engage in creative play. But I, I like to define play as the random use of, of mastered skills. So if we look at that playground again, we have neurotypical children who are running and jumping and climbing and crawling. And even if they aren't perfectly proficient in it, they've developed enough skill that they can utilize these physical skills in all different manner and, and put them together in all these different ways. With the autism population, because we know that strength, stability, and motor planning are going to be deficits, we have to first teach the skills to mastery level, and then when they are learned and they are um, the individuals motivated enough, then we have the uh, the early stages of developing play skills. That doesn't mean that they're going to come in the next week and start setting up their own obstacle course, but it means at at um, at the early stages, if I start giving choices for activity, if I say, do you want to do hurdle steps first or do you want to do medicine balls, uh, medicine ball push throws first, they can give me a, a, an answer in one way or another. It may not even be verbal about what they want to do first. So the fundamental tenant of play I think is choice in the physical activity, even if it has to be as structured as giving a choice between one exercise and another, because as we build that exponentially, then our athletes on the autism spectrum can start choosing from a field of three activities or four activities, or maybe some of them will start putting together their own obstacle courses. But if they don't have the fundamental physical skill, and if that underlying, um, if that underlying motivation towards um, towards play skills isn't there, then much like any other, much like you or I learning higher order uh, mathematical skills or learning geography, we have to teach play as a skill because the prerequisites are simply not there. Well, I'm glad you've thought it through because this is this is the greatest one of the greatest challenges I see in mainstream sport development is that. The, the fostering of the willingness to play is crushed early yeah. and yeah. therefore 
the reason for sport is lost and therefore the, the purpose and the motivation to participate in sport for life is gone. Oh, sure. Sure, because if you do it, if, if there's too much of a push and there's too much pressure and you're also, I, I, I have a longing for the creative aspects of play, even, even in competition. And, and I remember as, as a kid, you know, any game from tag on up where you could, we were inventing our own rules constantly. You had freeze tag and then you have, okay, you have to have your feet and hands on the floor. There are so many different uh, permutations or different versions of games, but we get into these. And, and I think it's, it's really the cultural influence because why, um, why is American football or why is basketball or why is baseball why is this so important? Is it because it demonstrates the absolute best that we can do physically? Or is it because as a culture, we've just decided to invest heavily, both um, emotionally and, and monetarily, into these particular physical outlet, outlets? Because from a comparative standpoint, are you going to say that baseball has any more merit than rock climbing or that you know distance cycling has has any less merit than 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 football or or soccer? No, it's just the amount of emphasis that we put on it as a culture. So if we step back and we can take away the the you know that cultural consideration, we're just looking at a bunch of different movement patterns. Good, good. It's it's absolutely it's the um, the overemphasis of, of certain sports and they they grew for reasons other than the optimal nature of the movement patterns in the sport. Excellent. So I'm going to put a, another one to you. Every, every culture, every country has a cultural bias. Uh, cultural bias uh, historically influenced yep. as, as environment, environmentally conditioned, etc. So how they, how they perceive what constitutes physical training. Mm -hmm. uh, ha have you given any thought to the American bias and how, whether or not you would see it optimal to reshape that perspective for your population? Yeah, that, you know what? That's a really interesting question because I, it just, it, 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 I, I just had, I, I've never even thought about this. So thank you. I wonder what autism looks like in some of the, um, some of the Asian cultures, uh, you know, and, and Southeast Asian cultures where squatting is, is predominant and there aren't a lot of chairs around. So can individuals on the autism spectrum in countries that aren't so heavily biased towards sitting, um, do they demonstrate better squatting patterns than we have in the Western world where the squatting patterns, and we know this of, uh, of mainstream populations are abysmal. I mean, I know, I know that your, um, your athletic and, and, and client population is far more wide ranging than mine is in. Um, and I'd like to get your take also, if, if you look at squatting patterns across the board from your general population athletes to your sports specific athletes, it, when, when they're first starting with you, do you see a, a big difference in their, in their capabilities? So first of all, squatting is overrated and it's overrated, it's American bias. Mm -hmm. Let, Let's let's broaden the discussion of squatting culture because sure. it's a really good one. You brought up mm -hmm. some very good points here. Mm -hmm. 
the majority of the world do not sit on a toilet bowl. Correct. The majority of the world squat very deeply to relieve themselves. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that, they've got a totally different movement pattern capability. Now, mm -hmm. I, I don't have autism-specific background to comment on that, but I would suggest that would be a cultural influence, as you've suggested. So the, the, the fundamental lifestyle differences between the cultures, uh, and, and, you know, fair enough, the majority of the Western world sit on a toilet bowl, um, yeah. but the majority of the world do not. And therefore, the ability to do a double, a deep a double knee bend is mm -hmm. considered just a fundamental reality. It's not, it's not like, wow, can you show me how you can do that? Like, right. you'd... We, we, round eyes are Caucasus, we call them starting blocks. Mm -hmm. If you go to many Asian countries, um, you know, if you're lucky, you'll get some concrete um, you know, imprints in the, in, the, in the ground where you put your feet and mm -hmm. um, there's a little hole there to, um, to aim to. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's a whole different ballgame. Mm -hmm. So the... Things that are valued in the U.S. population, in, in the U.S. physical preparation environment, are historically very different to what other cultures. That cultural difference is being diluted due to the influence of America has socially on the world. Mm. As the internet has um, expanded, and, and obviously I did about two decades professionally before the internet became a factor, um, since the introduction and the expansion of the internet, you can see the dissemination of American influence across the world. So we're going to need to really um, go back beyond that because I see that actually as not necessarily a good thing. I, I would probably feel a little bit like Western Price and the impact it has on Indigenous populations when they started eating refined, um, you know, refined sugars, etc. Um, some of the refined foods and flowers that uh, Western identified having a very instant impact on bone structure um, within the generation after the introduction of Westernised food. So. Uh, unfortunately, we probably need to go back to pre-internet to have a, a really good comparison. But yeah, I, I think there could be some value for your program um, to consider that. Now, there is a cultural context in which you operate in, so there are some expectations, I guess, from stakeholders and um, ways of measuring success, etc. But from a from an optimal perspective, in an ideal world, there'd be a lot to learn from a broader social context. Sure. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. And as um, as I travel, you know, and and bring the methodology and, and bring the certification program to more um, to different parts of the world, for example, in uh, in March, we're going to be in Croatia. And then in May of this year, we're going to be in Singapore. That's certainly something that I I want to explore is what do the gross motor or the strength deficits look like in the non-Western world? You know, what do they look like in in Asia? Is it as is it as much of an issue? And I think something underlying that, and you went <laughs> pre-internet age, uh, bringing it back to crawling patterns also. And I started adding several years ago to my intake form uh, a question concerning crawling and and i found and this is just anecdotally that many of of the athletes that i work with skipped the crawling phase so if we talk about all of the you know the proprioceptive and and the stability and motor planning 
skills that we get from crawling, if we don't develop those from actually crawling, what else is is missed out and how is that going to affect um, physical skills going forward as an individual begins uh, begins walking? And then as, as they get into adolescence and, and teenage years where the body is maturing and there's more bulk, so the um, the opportunity for there to be more compensatory movement patterns increases. So the the role of crawling is one that impacts on all humans. Uh, obviously, you're seeing a higher incidence in the autistic population. Yeah. Uh, the the impact on athleticism is considered to be considerable. Uh, this mm -hmm. is a um, athlete development principle that's uh, been bounced around for many many decades, mm -hmm. and and, and obviously the question is always asked, you know, can we, can, we, uh, can we develop at a later age? I think the window might have closed a little bit, but it, it's, a, it's a very valid point that impacts on, on all people, not just your autistic uh, population um, movement pattern there, which, which comes back to cultural differences in that I, I think we have a potentially a, a lower movement habit in, in the developed world, mm -hmm. and we also have a more adult controlled or adult supervised yeah uh, in, in, a, in, the, in the western world and probably more directed to the socioeconomic status uh, not just the whether they're third world developing nation or first uh, first world nations sure so there's a lot there's a lot of opportunity to to do with the autistic population at the earlier age groups what the entire population should be doing um, which is challenging and, and, and giving them the freedom to move and, and, and the opportunity to challenge. I mean, there are a few programs around that are still adult driven, but um, uh, there's a few programs around that are actually out of America, um, I'm trying to remember the name, but where they encourage them to, to crawl and encourage them to climb over objects, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, th this is an education that I believe should occur within culture and within family because a, a child that's not encouraged to crawl and not encouraged to, to challenge themselves on objects in a safe environment um, is missing out on athletic development and maybe missing out on um, neural development that's tied to the physical movement. Oh, uh, yeah, unquestionably. And the, the difference between the neurotypical and the autism population there is in the neurotypical population, you have again, that, that motivation or that inclination to engage in all those play skills, but as as a result of what we've done culturally, we are stagnating that by saying, well, you know, have have them, uh, you know, stand have them stand up in in this, you know, pla in the, in this plastic standing carriage, where you know that that's going to stand for them like some robotic shell, and they're not able to fall back down, or we're limiting access to. Uh, to recess or free play, and that's going to have an impact. The the other side of that with the autism population are these are skills that are not um, not inherent to this population. So on the one side with the neurotypical population, we have to allow for them to to seek that natural inclination, and with the autism population we have to teach that as a skill so eventually they too will seek it out so the process is just a little bit um, a little bit different i call it a little more staggered
Yeah, and and the, the, the incredible thing is the number one activity that adults should do with a child is to get on the ground with them and crawl with them. Mm -hmm. uh, because if, if in the absence of some other child of, of a similar age, um, we can encourage them to crawl by being a role model. Absolutely, and, and, and get some mobility and stability ourselves also. And if, if you're engaging in that on a regular basis, I mean, if, if you look across a lifetime, it's a pretty good idea to be skilled in going from the ground to standing up, particularly um, when, when people get into their geriatric years too. So to be comfortable with movement on the ground in a different plane of motion, I think is invaluable uh, and it, it comes back to the point from 40 minutes ago about fitness across the lifetime. What do we actually need to achieve physically in order to be healthy and capable individuals? Very important point, a very important point. So um, at the end of the day, I believe we measure our success not by, by championships and trophies, et cetera, or gross and in salary, but as a, as a population by the health and the physical activity of the elderly. And mm -hmm. there are some beautiful stories coming out of some Asian cultures where, you know, they may be, you know, maybe uh, 80 to 120 years of age and, and incredibly flexible and engaging in, in, in extensive um, Tai Chi type movements uh, and similar sort of semi-gymnastic movements. And that for me is uh, a greater success than what we're experiencing. Mm -hmm. despite our incredible investment in facility in the Western world. Mm. Yeah, because it demonstrates body control too. And it's it's one thing, look, in in, in my personal life, I, I compete uh, in, in powerlifting, but I think it's something to be said, you know, to, to have 400 or 500 pounds on your back and be able to, to push it up, is fantastic but if you can't do a forward roll or you can't hold yourself stable without shaking in in that bear walk or that crawl position there's definitely an imbalance that needs to be looked at there well the, 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 the interesting topic to raise because whilst of all due respect for powerlifting competing to myself it, it is arguably the most simple yeah physical activity or competition that's been turned into competition. There's obviously challenges with load because there's, there's challenges with load. And, but as far as a movement pattern, because it doesn't get any simply, it would, it would be arguably the most simple movement pattern in sport on the planet. Um, and yet, and yet in, in the American culture, it's been one of the most impactful in the way physical training is being designed. So mm. there are some cultural considerations for for you in, in your in your in your culture as to how it oh absolutely even, even with, power, with power lifting if you look at the press originally it was an overhead press it's a bench mm -hmm. press now is there is there any reason to lie down and press something unless unless you're i i don't know if it's a necessarily a, a functional skill for a mechanic to have but apart from that, outside of that competition, why would anybody do that? Right. Well, it, that's a, that's an interesting point, and I'm not convinced that the bench press replaced the press. The press was eliminated from competitive Olympic lifting in the early sure. 70s. 72 was the last one um, mm -hmm. for for reasons that relate to placing load to the front of the body. 
-hmm. uh, which opens up a whole new discussion uh, about some of the, the considerations that should be made aware of in relation to kettlebells, but that's probably even more volatile topic. Right. Um, I, I actually find, even though the bench may, may lack the apparent specificity, the bench, from my experience with athletes, actually has a considerable transfer to to a lot of horizontal displacement, so mm. force displayed in the horizontal plane um, mm. relative to, you know, so if you're standing, then it's transferring to the same 90-degree plane. Sure. So I, I'm probably a little bit more of a fan of that, but at the end of the day, um, we certainly don't need to base our, our strength programs around it. Um, mm. but, but probably my considerations are broader in that, the, the thing that always intrigues me about, I'd say, the American versus the Eastern European approach to physical training, or even the traditional English, and when I say traditional English, I'm talking about the English that was influenced by the East Germans, and I'm, I don't want to, I mean, we hopefully can put aside the drug discussion because that came through as well, but the, the, the Europeans looked at physical training differently than the Americans, and the Americans have taken a very narrow strength focus, whereas traditionally the Europeans had a far more balanced approach Mm -hmm. to what constituted the physical qualities. Right. Right. And why do you think that is, you know, having, having such a, a, a broad and well-versed, you know, historical perspective on that, what, what changed between the two cultures where you had a more robust view in, in the Eastern European model than we have in the American model? So there's a number of factors. First of all, let's say Europe was sorry, America was settled by Europeans. So you'd, you'd hope it would have transferred, but uh, without knowing the the demographics of the of the immigration, and perhaps the the European immigrants were more peripheral than than, than deeper in the European <laughs> landmass. Land so I think the there is that impact. <laughs> but then you go in you go into the culture and. You know, you start asking questions like this: What side of the road do the Americans drive on? Left. What side of the road do the Europeans right. drive on? Right. Mm -hmm. So it's just one of many examples where, for whatever reason, the Americans just wanted to be a bit different. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I can't say that's that's the reason, but there is a lot of things that the Americans do, that culturally do, that uh, that set them apart and make it unique. And this is not a judgment, not, a, not per se, but I'm just talking for for reasons why, and it, it, then the the next impact is that when countries are remote and and Australia was the most remote continent, being one of the most uh, most last to be invaded. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we've got a 200 history, you've got a 400 year history um, since invasion. The the opportunity is also the challenge. So when you get isolated you become a little bit more myopic. And I think that a lot of American culture became myopic. It, it looked within and not without. Mm. Uh, I, can, I can remember traveling to America in the 80s and, you know, we'd go in the, in, in the parts of America and people would say, you know, where are you from? And I'd say Australia and they'd say, well, where's that? And I'm not joking. Wow. Um, if you got on the on the, 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 the West Coast, you know, if you said Paul Hogan and throw a shrimp on the barbie, you'd be good. But generally mm -hmm. speaking, the majority of Americans didn't know where Australia was in 1980. So I think it's America got a little bit isolated, a little bit myopic and developed their own culture. And, and that's just a reality. But I, the thing that's the thing that I am not enjoying watching is that America has grown to be 
the most influential country in the world from a from a lifestyle perspective, and and that's a, that's a that's a social political discussion, uh, and and there's reasons for it. But with that comes that it's a modelling. A lot of the countries that once had great uh, physical culture are being more and more influenced by the American culture, and I, I'm not sure that that's optimal. So you know, without wanting to upset or, or be judgmental, um, my challenge to people is. You know, we are a globe. We're just we're just one big um, you know one big population now. It's, we've been joined. Uh, you know, this we can get, we can get, get on a plane and see each other pretty quickly. We, internet connects us immediately. Um, mm -hmm. There's no reason, no matter how great we want to make America today, there's no reason why we need to enforce American values on everybody in the world of physical preparation. Um, there's no reason why we can't investigate uh, some of the some of the global influences and, and some of the influences. I'll, I'll take you back a little bit further. If you if you say that first of all there's an indigenous population and then there was then the European invasion, that's quite a common thing for developed nations. Mm -hmm. the the intent of the intent of that was to suppress the indigenous indigenous population, but now and their culture. Now it's being recognised, fortunately, that there's there was so much wisdom in the indigenous way. So we've we suppressed it so much. And I'm talking about the American Indians in America. I'm talking about Aboriginal in Australia, etc. We've suppressed it so that we've really got to dig a little bit deeper to go back and, and learn um, what worked in a time when people had no other way of coming to a cause-effect relationship than, and, and, than an objective experience for themselves. Sure. And I, I think that the really important point that you, you just made was finding out what works and, and then also finding out why it works as well, but looking at it not from the, you know, we do things this way or we do, okay, what work, What makes more sense and, and, and to validate, you know, methods and actions and, and behaviors that make sense. Now, there are some things, you know, traditionally or culturally that it's not a merit-based discussion. So you're not going to say that one culture's music is, inherently better than another because that's a subjective consideration but to look at um you know athletic development or or physical development over the course of uh let's say five years of age to 12 years of age i think there's an indication that certainly we haven't been doing things as productively as has been done in the past in different regions of the world and that needs to be looked at absolutely and the, in the point you make is what works and validate it so i see validation as a second step not as a first step in other words research is a second step the challenge we're, we're in 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 a, in a u.s influenced world is the perception that research should lead decision making in physical training. In other words, if someone's doing something and another person says, but there's no research to support what you're doing, it right. sort of sh it shatters them. Right. So I, I, I'm, people might misinterpret what I'm saying. I'm not saying science doesn't have a place, but I'm saying science is not the leader. Science, for me, is a validator. And we are paying a price in our society for the for the dominant paradigm, in particularly um, you know, post 2000, where, where, where science has raised its perceived value to be able to state, well, if there's no, if there's no evidence in science, you should do it, you shouldn't do it. Now, and I'm going to make a very specific example, the, the, the subject of stretching. 
if you if you collate all of the research on, on stretching and you look at the conclusions that have made, there's some serious question marks about it. Now, what's happened is we've had an entire generation in the Western world stop stretching because of the inverted commas, there's no evidence in science to support stretching. Now, if you had someone stretch and then had someone not stretch, but I'm talking about stretch over a period of three three years to, to, to 60 years, they mm -hmm. would come to a conclusion. Now, uh, compared to someone who did it for 12 weeks along the protocol of a study. So mm -hmm. the, the, the indigenous population conclusions weren't based upon a scientific study. Now, I'm not saying all indigenous decisions were proven in terms of long um, in, in, over time to be the, the best of the wisest, but there was certainly a lot of wisdom there that was was born out of what worked. So, and I'm, I'm I guess I'm advocating on behalf of those who are not able to advocate for themselves, which I think are the in such as the, those on the spectrum, which I suspect believe are the people that need to be advocated for. In the same way, I advocate very strongly for the, for the for the youth because youth can't advocate effectively against adults in, in right. the negotiation of how to train. I, I simply encourage people to to be brave, to, to have the courage to, to look at this and look at this in a way that you might get some, some knives in your back, but you know what's more important, that what's best for the people who you're responsible for or your short-term conformity uh, reputation? Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and to comment on what you mentioned before about scientific validation, it can't lead because you start with innovation. You can't start with research and then innovate. Mm -hmm. You start with the innovation or you start with a hypothesis and then mm -hmm. that's what the entire scientific method is predicated on, that you start with a hypothesis that you don't know. And you know it, it leads me back to autism fitness where I was taking methodology that was um that was tested and 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 validated to to a good degree on the physical movement side and then from um from my knowledge and, and practice in uh in behavior support strategies so now when people ask me about study or oh, their studies um regarding physical fitness and and the autism population there will be, but for the past 15 years, I've been too busy doing it in in order to get to get into you know clinical research. Some of, some of which we're starting to do now, but the methodology was so new that I wasn't going to start testing it before I started implementing it, because implementing it was based on sound practice. It just wasn't validated yet for this particular population only because I, and I think it's a decent argument because it didn't exist. Absolutely, and my personal belief on, on um, testing and refining before even talking about a concept is I, I like to give it at least a decade. I think a decade is a good time um, to, to, to get clear clarity and refine on your innovation. Um, and I, I've seen some, um, Cases where that that patience hasn't been demonstrated, uh, especially people rushing to validate their theory, uh, mm -hmm. and even producing so-called studies to, to validate it, and um, you know the, the hip thrust is one that comes to mind. Um, you know, I, I would rather an innovator sit on it for a decade and and, and test it with the largest as population as possible mm -hmm. to get the bugs out of it. Right. 
So any... Eric, before you release the DVD. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I can tell you, um, yeah, let's take time and attention. I, I'm still not convinced that there's been a, a hell of a lot of validation on the subject, but it's a, it's a term I coined in the early 1990s uh, in, in collaboration with a colleague. Um, you know, there are just so many things that we put out there during the 90s that even though many of them have been embraced and, and used, even in, in research papers, I see the terminology used. Um, the, the understanding of the origin and, and, and even the validation still hasn't been completed, but you know, that's that's a bigger subject for us. Uh, so talk to us about um, your, your courses for any physical preparation coaches around the world. Yeah. And that is uh, who, who may have an interest in developing their skill set or may even be more committed sure. to a specific audience. Yeah, so the Autism Fitness Level 1 certification is for professionals, and, and we get uh, this fantastic interdisciplinary uh, attendance. We get people in the fitness world. We get a lot of physical therapists, occupational therapists, um, behavior therapists, special educators, speech pathologists who all want to use fitness as a gateway towards optimizing their program. So there are, and you know, won't even get into it right now, but the things that some speech pathologists can do with movement and language skills is, is extraordinary. So the, the level one certification we're, we've taught, um, I, I've taught that all over the continental United States. And then as I mentioned in 2019, I'm going to be in, uh, in Croatia in March, which I believe is already sold out, um, Singapore in May. And then we've had a lot of interest from, uh, from the UK and, and certainly Australia uh, has, has shown a lot of interest and uh, for, for those who are not yet ready to attend the level one certification, we are in the process right now of finishing up the new version of the Autism Fitness Toolbox, which is an online program that has the PAC profile assessment, PAC stands for physical, adaptive, and cognitive. And those are the three skill sets that we're looking at when considering um, physical fitness programs and adapted PE programs for this population. So it has all of the assessment materials. It has a video library. So what does it actually look like when these athletes are going through these programs in uh, a variety of different environments? But more importantly than that, a, a variety of different individuals of different ages, of different uh, physical, adaptive, and, and cognitive abilities as well. So we're going to be launching the new version of the autism fitness toolbox uh likely in in february of 2000 2019 so anybody who's interested in the programming and of course on our our youtube page and our facebook page on autism fitness we're constantly putting up new videos and and articles and if people want to get in deeper then certainly the ebooks uh and the toolbox are a a fantastic place to start and then for people who really want to take this on as a as a population and a demographic that they want to serve uh, the level one certification, it, it, we've gotten nothing but wonderful feedback on it so far, and we're starting to develop the level two now to, uh, as well. So it sounds like where you're at in the in the stage of your your industry niche is is very similar to where my industry, so to speak, uh, the athlete 
um, elite athlete was, uh, say, 40 years ago when and then I think the, the first college strength coach in America was hired in, in about 69 and even by mid-70s, you, you probably didn't have more than half a dozen to a dozen um, salaried strength coaches in college level you know, around America. So it's a really young industry. Um, you know, when I started in 1980, there wasn't a single person in my country who, who even knew what athlete preparation was. Or, um, mm. And and it wasn't until the mid-90s in Australia where you had um, any other person almost who made a full-time income, so to speak, out of, of training athletes. But um, from my experience, things have changed rapidly. The, the market gets very crowded very quickly. So, you know, it, I'm just encouraging you, uh, you know, from one innovator to another to, to look forwards into uh, the decades to come and, and just be really clear on, on your path because if the market gets crowded with diversity of, um, of approach, then you've got to be very clear with your message, I guess is what I'm saying. Sure, sure. I, I can I can definitely accept that. Yeah, it, 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 it changes because at the moment it's like a new frontier from what I'm hearing. Um, so we, on behalf of our Spectrum brothers and sisters, want to thank you for your effort and your contribution. Uh, you know, the re one of the reasons we're talking is because anybody who, who I see reaching out to advocate on a for a population irrespective of age that's not equally able to advocate for themselves deserves our support. Uh, and, and thank you so much for the opportunity also. And I think I mentioned to you uh, when we were first chatting on, on Facebook that early on in my training career after my first certification, yours was one of the first seminars. I, I was um, a, an avid reader of your columns on, on T-Nation. In fact, I can very vividly recall getting out of my car after following your limping into November <laughs> protocol at one point and being sore within 20 minutes of training uh, <laughs> and, and managing somehow to not fall uh, face first onto the concrete, uh, get, getting back uh, home to my parents' apartment at, at the time. And and then actually and then getting the opportunity to to meet and learn from you uh, one Saturday in in Manhattan, probably back in uh, wow like ninety eight ninety nine. Well, I appreciate you're a student of history, and that that uh, programming approach certainly changed the way the world looked at strength training, as as you know, because you saw both sides of it and. And very, very, for a very good reason, because what I introduced was methods that really did um, give you opportunity to talk to your muscles in a way that they weren't being talked to before. Yes, I screamed at from from what I recollect. <laughs> I must say I've um, developed a little bit of a sixth, sixth sense of humour after watching so many people collapse in front of me. Um, but and you and you know it's not from excessive load and it's not from excessive volume it's just from really um you know methods that target the, the body in a certain way it, it's from leaving no part of the leg untouched absolutely absolutely so yeah it's um i, I think it was the, the, the beginning of looking at the body in a different way um as you know and and i'm, I'm encouraging you to you know do the same with um with your your programming you know don't don't take anything for granted don't don't accept just because it has been and you know be the innovator even uh, even though innovators do tend to get a bit of, a few arrows in the back but you know it's it's so much more rewarding doing what's right for people 
Oh, I, I welcome that. If there's criticism, it means that people are paying attention. Absolutely. So, Eric, hopefully from today we'll generate a greater awareness of what you're doing. And and I know I have many um, friends who are touched personally by the condition of autism. Um, mm -hmm. You know, my wife tells me I'm on the spectrum. But anyway, um, <laughs> so it's it's a it's a really valuable contribution you're making, and I look forward to watching your business grow and the impact that you're having on the world of autism become greater. Thank you so much, Ian. And, and again, thank you for the, you know, the platform to, to be able to share this. And thank you for your contribution to the strength and conditioning and, and the physical culture world too, because it's certainly for the, the great better. Well, I appreciate that bringing up 40 years next year professionally. So um, shows how young I am. That's not a, that's a joke. <laughs> I'll be turning 40 in two years if that helps. <laughs> yeah, that's it's amazing, Eric. Um, you know, when you're young and you, you tend to mock the the older person, then you, you become that older person, and then you, you realize that, um, you know, the awful, only thing we can do, I think, is make the most of our time. Um, you know, give it, give it our, give it our best every single day. So for me, uh, it's a collection of experience. It's a collection of, of giving 100% every single day rather than, um, you know, ruining the age or the passing of time. I think uh, we all have an, we have the same opportunity. It's just how much we take advantage of the opportunity in the same way that you're taking advantage of that opportunity and you're driving a, a niche market and you're driving innovation. And I think yeah. that's the way to live, live life. And to bring it full circle, I think that's what, I, I think that's what a good, physical fitness program will do. It will just extend that quality of life so someone has as many opportunities in this world as possible. Absolutely. And every decision we make in our training should be not just for today. It should be for 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years time. I look at a, an athlete at the, at the end of their life and I ask myself, did the things I did to them back at their, at their peak of their youth, did they serve them throughout their entire life? And um, you know, if we if we can take that approach, we'll have a far more positive impact on quality of life because really we spend more time um, in other stages of our life than we do at the peak of our physical prowess. Sure. Sure. Absolutely. So I appreciate your time, Eric, and look forward to to watching your business and career expand. You're doing a phenomenal job. You're doing a very unique job, and a job that. You know, providing a, a service and a role that is just so needed. Um, you know, when I was a when I was a, a child on my on the, my grandfather's farm, neighbouring uh, property, there was a hut that was built for a man who had um, unknown conditions. He was called Dummy, mm -hmm. and they built a little house. It was a little replica house, and he spent his entire life living in there. That house was called Dummy's house. And I'll never forget that, that um, the way now we give people opportunities that we didn't two generations ago. Sure. Sure. Wow. So I appreciate it on behalf of, of, of society. Thank you, Eric. And uh, great chatting and look forward to getting this podcast up and sharing it with the world. Great speaking with you, Ian. Thank you again. Thank you. Bye.